Hi and welcome to The Eco Chamber, a podcast on all things environmental journalism brought to you by EMS Report. I'm James Adjapong Parsons. In this week's episode, we'll be covering a whopping £800,000 fine for the illegal abstraction of billions of litres of water, the new Environment Agency powers to dish out unlimited fines for lawbreakers, and the release of hundreds of rare water voles in the Lake District. For our deep dive, I caught up with Helen Clarkson, CEO of Climate Group, the international non-profit bringing state and business leaders around the table, all in the pursuit of net zero. So without further ado, let's enter the Eco Chamber! So on today's episode, I've got Jamie Carpenter and Shosha Adi to break through the mass of big green news. And we start with United Utilities, which has been slapped an £800,000 fine for the illegal abstraction of 22 billion litres of water after they were sentenced last week at Warrington Magistrates Court. So Shosha, can you tell us how did UU get into this mess? In 2018, United Utilities were found to have over-abstracted water from boreholes in Lancashire, as you said, um, by some 22 billion litres. According to the Environment Agency, this led to a significant decline in the water level available in the Flyde Aquifer um, and put stress on the environment, as it was during a period of very dry weather, which we might all remember, actually. Um, this breached five of its abstraction licenses um, and the water company said that although they hadn't breached their daily or yearly limits, they'd actually gone over their three-year rolling limit. So this, although they were sentenced last week, this actually was about abstraction in 2018? Correct. Can you put that 22 billion figure into sort of a, a, a real world uh, summation for us? Like how can I visualise that much water? To go with the the usual, um, it's about 8,800 Olympic swimming pools worth of water. Um, what really put it in perspective for me, though, was the amount of water we use in England per day is roughly about 8.2 billion litres. So that's if you use the daily per capita consumption for 2022, which was 146 litres per person, and multiply that by the population, which is 55.9 million. So it's, it's quite a lot of water that they drew out. That's Around three days worth of water. For the whole country? For the whole country. Oof. What have the government and regulators made of the sentence, Jamie? Well, they they have the EA and the um, Water Minister, Rebecca Powell, have given some fairly sort of brief quotes in, in the press release about this. So um, both, both were kind of welcoming the sentence. So... Um, so the EA statement said that um, they, they their their actions as a regulator have led to the day sentencing and they're, they're going to continue to strive for a better water sector across the country. Rebecca Powell didn't say very much. She said it's absolutely right that companies that harm our environment are held to account by the courts, as has happened with United Utilities. I, I think it's kind of interesting to know what the Environment Agency really think about that fine because given the the um, huge numbers involved, the amount of the amount of water that was over-abstracted, um, £800,000 doesn't really seem that much. Um, so as well. Through gritted teeth, they welcomed the announcement. Yeah, perhaps, yeah. I mean, I think it's it's a lot of... Um, 
it's a lot of water's abstracted, and 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 the the EA is saying that um, the the aquifer that that's been drained could take years to recover. So it's it's, it's um, not a not a small thing. I think one thing just to note in there as well is at the time United Utilities did pay out a sort of three million pound compensation to local charities, which might have been under the um, enforcement undertakings. Um, but that was something they put in their comment response, not to defend them, because I still think, you know, can you put a price on something like water? Um, but very interesting. So what what have you, you said in response to this? They, they've mentioned that three million pounds Shosha brought up. Anything else? Yeah, well, they, they, they say that they, um, that they apologise for the breach that happened. They very they wanted to make clear that it happened five years ago in twenty eighteen, um, and they also said that we did not exceed the amount of water we could abstract on a daily and yearly basis, but we did inadvertently breach a three year rolling limit on the abstraction license. And as soon as we discovered this, we established additional controls to ensure that it never happens again. Uh, yeah, and 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 they they made a three million voluntary contribution. So it's kind of interesting that they they're kind of presenting it almost as a a technical error as opposed to anything more serious. A three year technical error, mind. <laughs> yeah, but if it's an inadvertent breach, then it's an inadvertent breach. Um, in United Utilities, it looks like they might have more legal battles on the horizon, don't they, Shosha? Yes, things are really heating up for water companies. United Utilities is one of six that may face legal claims worth 800 million. Um, This is through collective proceedings being brought on behalf of the 20 million household customers those companies serve um, by Professor Carolyn Roberts, who's an environmental and water consultant. She's being represented by the law firm Lide, who argue water companies have broken competition law by abusing their monopoly over the market and underreporting pollution incidents. So the first one of those challenges will be against Seven Trent Water, and that's for eight million customers at a value of three hundred and thirty million. So if that's a litmus test. You you might have big challenge down the line. It's worth saying that Seven Trent, a Seven Trent spokesperson, has said that this claim is a highly speculative claim with no merit, which we strongly refute. And a Water UK spokesperson has said that this claim is entirely without merit. We will see if that is the case. On to our second story this week, and it's the news that the EA is about to get a set of new and very sharp teeth under plans to lift the cap on something called variable monetary penalties. And they're going to use them to punish a wider range of environmental crimes, it is thought. So just to kick off, these variable monetary penalties or VMPs, what what is that? What are they? Well, they're they're, um, they're one of a, a range of civil sanctions that can be used to um, deal with environmental offences. So um, another one that's more commonly used is an enforcement undertaking, which is where polluters and, and the environment agency will, will kind of agree um, a voluntary arrangement whereby a, a polluter will then pay some money to good causes, typically a local wildlife charity, and, and, and may make some procedural improvements. Um, a variable monetary penalty or, or VMP is a bit different to that in that it's kind of almost like a fine, but without having to go through the courts. Um, but until until recently, they've been very, very little used. Um, 
but that could all be about to change. Do we do we know at the moment how how many VMPs have been brought up or brought to light? I can't give you an official figure, but I did have a scan of our fines monitor, which goes back just over a decade. And of roughly 1,200 entries, we only listed six VMPs. This makes it seem like they're quite rare, but actually it could also be because VMPs aren't as widely publicised, hence why they are traditionally more favoured by companies. Um, and the amount hasn't might not have necessarily been significant enough to make it onto our database, as quite a few VMPs are given out for phishing offences that are usually less than £1,000. So kind of like Little Fish, or after Little Fish, previously VMPs, Ranel Jawadina comes in, if everyone remembers him. We um, remember him. We, we all do. remember Ranel. Where did he go? Um, this was his big idea. So the former Environment Secretary came in with this idea that we're going to revamp VMPs from Little Fish to Big Fish. How, what was his plan at the time, Jamie? Can you just remind our listeners? Yeah, so this this is this feels like a... A lifetime ago, but actually, it was not even a year ago at the last Conservative Party conference. So, so in his in his very short stint as Environment Secretary, his his big announcement at the conference was was that they, he would he would lift the lid on or lift the cap on on these VMPs, and and I think I think raise the the cap from two hundred fifty thousand to two hundred fifty million. Um, That's a thousand fold increase. Yes, it is a thousand fold increase. So it's big, um, but there was there was a slight problem which it kind of later emerged that they couldn't really be used against water companies um, <laughs> for permit breaches because which those, is what they were for which the the announcement was about well that was kind of what it seemed to be about the problem being that the pollution incidents by water companies normally they they're kind of covered by environmental permitting regulations and these variable monetary penalties aren't weren't currently within that or weren't at that time within that regime so something would need to change in order to actually get them to work in that way. Um, and actually, to be, to be, I think it's probably fair to say that Ranel's now having the, the last laugh because it's all, all kind of gone through the system very, very quickly. And within a few months now, we could actually be seeing these new unlimited fines that are even bigger than he suggested at that conference. Yeah. And what was quite funny as well is that at that point, no water company had been prosecuted using a VMP, of course. But actually, um, in June, the first ever VMP was awarded to a water company, Anglian Water, um, using the Salmon and Freshwater Fisheries Act. So they could have awarded VMPs under it, but it's, you know, not quite as, um, it's not quite the same as environmental permitting. It wouldn't be for sewage spills. That's interesting. So now with the kind of government's backing on on this idea, we have an EA consultation out about what these new VMPs would do. Who's in the firing line? Well, a lot a lot of people, a lot of a lot of organizations now. So so there there are kind of two things going on here. One one is the lifting of the cap. So the 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 £250,000 cap is 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 going to be no more and it'll be unlimited fines potentially but the other thing that's part of the plan which has kind of got less attention really is the idea that these these VMPs will be um, applied to all activities where an environmental permit is is required so it's not just about water companies it's about all sorts of stuff so this this means um, waste companies mining and extractive industries um, 
pig and poultry farming L- loads of stuff will now be brought into that into scope of this um so and i think i think we're still we're still kind of at the point where, where we're unpicking the implications of that so i think there is there's starting to be some some concerns now that from the waste industry about how how they might be affected and and some questions around around fairness I think there's, there's a, a perception that a lot of the problem in the waste sector is to do with kind of cowboys who probably wouldn't be able to pay an unlimited fine anyway. So if you're going to raise the the amount of fine that you could charge or the amount of fine you could levy, it's only going to be the kind of serious proper operators in that sector that might actually be be um, affected by that. And by and large, I think the 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 view of people is that they're they're trying to do the right thing and and are professional. So it's kind of a little bit difficult to see how that's how that's going to work at the moment. There's also concerns as well about I think the waste industry feels that the EA doesn't always apply its kind of permitting assessments and compliance assessments in a in a kind of uniform way. And there's a question of fairness there. So I think there's there's going to be a lot more to be said around that over the next few months. So everyone's really scared that they've got a really big bat they're about to be given. What has the EA said about this, Shosha? Well, the EA says it will allow them to punish environmental offenders more rapidly, um, but serious cases will still be taken through criminal proceedings. Um, and to actually even issue a VMP, the EA must be satisfied beyond reasonable doubt that an offence has been committed. And that's the same as the standard of proof for a criminal trial. So that is a big hurdle that one needs to get across um, before this penalty can be applied. The VMPs will also be calculated based on the sentencing guidelines for environmental offences. And these assess the size of the fine in relation to the size of an organisation's turnover or equivalent. I think this is in the interests of, you know, fairness. So big Um, company, big stick, little company, big stick, but maybe swing it less hard. And then there's other factors as well, such as an offender's ability to pay, of course. Um, so the money paid out through the VMPs will also go into that pot, if it's by a water company, um, for reinvestment back into environmental projects. And that's something that was announced earlier this year in the plan for water to try and you know suck back some of that money from water companies into remediation. Um, it's probably also worth noting that the technical aspects of the fines that we've just mentioned actually aren't up for consultation this time. Um, they're more trying to get feedback on whether they've presented the information about these changes well. So if you find it confusing as a practitioner in the sector, um, it is definitely worth responding to that consultation. I think it's running till um, some point in October. It's an 8B consultation launched last week. So yes, they've also asked if the appeals process is clear enough as well. So on the appeal then, if, if I don't want my feet to get a beat, how would I appeal this VMP? Well, the the um, the process apparently is is the same as it has been for appealing VMPs. So there, there is, and that's already in the EA's enforcement and sanction policy. Um, so there there are there are kind of various grounds where you can bring an appeal. So so if you if you believe that a decision was based on an error of fact, decision was wrong in law, or it was unreasonable, or the amount is unreasonable, then 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 you you can launch an appeal so I think I think it's kind of interesting that some of the, some of the stuff here is not changing and also the thing around I think the um sentencing guidelines is interesting because I I think it 
if if in theory the EA is then taking the same approach as the courts in deciding how big these fines should be, it kind of seems to me unlikely that the EA is going to start levying bigger fines than the courts might because it seems a little bit... Um, I think there might be some questions around around that if that were to happen. And challenges, I imagine. Yeah, I think so. That that might well be give people the ammunition to say, well, that amount is unreasonable and, and launch a challenge on that basis. And these legislative changes then, which are needed for the new unlimited VMPs, they're expected to come into force and apply from the 1st of December this year. If you want to know any more about this, please do visit endsreport.com and check out Shosha's analysis for more info. Oh, and also... Jamie and I chat about this in episode 49 of the podcast in our deep dive section. So if you really love this topic, um, there's a lot more. (laughs) On to our final story then with the news that hundreds of endangered water voles have been released into the Lake District. On the count of three, one big R, one, two, three. What's the story, Jamie? Well, it's it's a rare piece of good news on the the eco chamber. So, So as you say that there are now more than 200 water voles hopefully rampaging around the Lake District National Park. Um, so they've, they've been released across the RSPB's Horsewater Nature Reserve in Cumbria. Um, and this is, this is part of a kind of attempts across the, the nation to, to boost the population of, of water voles, which have had some real problems with um, invasive mink. So they're yeah they're endangered in England. They're critically endangered in Wales. Like what? Do we know why their numbers have been hammered so hard? Um, yeah, well, yeah, we do. I mean, I think I think the the um, a real a real problem has been um, the predation of the invasive American mink. Um, so so this was originally reared for its fur, but some some mink escaped from fur farms in the nineteen sixties, and and they're actually now. It's pretty well established in the UK, but but um, whole colonies of water moles have unfortunately been decimated because their their defences against the mink. So kind of sad story, really. I saw by one stock take, they their populations have fallen from around eight million in the last century to one hundred thirty two thousand in this century. Wow! Um, so that's and that's across ninety four percent of their sites where they once lived, including the Lake District. Oh no, this was supposed to be our good news story. This was, and, and actually it wasn't just... Bring es- it back from the brink. Bring well, it back, well, It wasn't just escapes as well. It was intentional releases, you know, animal rights campaigners thinking they're doing the right thing because who wants to wear a fur coat of mink? Um, the law of unintended consequences. But this is a good news story. <laughs> Who's behind this good news project? Well, it's it's a it's a joint project. So it's it's this is a joint reduction program between the Eden Rivers Trust, Cumbria Connect, and the Environment Agency. So so in total, they've released more than three hundred and fifty water voles across two locations in the Lake District, and the other ones on the Lother Estate, which is managed by United Utilities, who are getting a lot of coverage in this podcast. United Utilities, <laughs> okay. So the, this is the good. This is it. The, yeah, exactly right. Um, and there was there was another character involved in this the the revered uh, Derek Gow. I understand his consultancy was involved in the selection of these sites and particularly actually supplying those captive bred water voles um, because they to make up this kind of once widespread uh, group of of voles they've actually sort of 
breeder northern genus types so to make sure that there was the mm. right genetics in this population and if if anyone wants to know who Derek Gow is you can watch our documentary wilderness um where Derek has a very interesting piece to say about our national parks and Dartmoor Shosha, you know this is a water vole tiny little thing you know not as impressive as the beaver why should I care well I think all things great and small you know, we, we should want to look after them from an intrinsic perspective, not necessarily just, you know, this new wave of seeing biodiversity as something that's quantifiable. But they are actually a keystone species, which means they're a vital part of the ecosystem. And I think this is the, the way that they sort of graze and, and um, go about their life actually helps build complex, resilient um, aquatic wildlife so yeah they're quite useful they're not just small and pretty to look at <laughs> and it's not just ratty from wind in the willows there's more to it I, I read actually that they they actually they eat more than 200 different species of plant really in their diets so and they're able to keep, keep particularly grasses they can keep down those grasses in riparian habitats that allows the succession of other um, wildflowers to come through they, they bore into the uh, the river banks that digs up nutrients, which is then used by the soil. Like they cycle that enormous benefits that I think maybe a little thing like that you might not expect straight away. Maybe they are as cool as the beaver. Um, there are some photos and a video on our website, which you can go check out for more on that story. And let us know by emailing ecochamber at haymarket.com. What's cooler, the beaver or the water vole? We've made this into a competition now. <laughs> it is a competition. It's on. Okay, it is time for our moment of the week. A time for reflection on something funny, humorous, intelligent, wise, scary. Jamie, your moment of the week. I've got, can I be controversial and go for two? You I've can got, go for two. I've got one, one personal one very quickly is that I had a... Um, a really magical experience in my garden on Saturday evening, dusk, three bats were flying around. Beautiful. Really nice. Um, kids loved it. So that was just a, that was a non-professional one, but Love I enjoyed it. the bats. Um, on a slightly more, um, less, less nice note, I thought a moment of the week for, for me this week was the, um, the Fukushima news. So, um, so we were talking about, um, Olympic swimming pools earlier in in the in the podcast in relation to United Utilities, um, but this relates to the release of five hundred Olympic swimming pools worth of treated radioactive water from the ruined nuclear power plants. That's going to be happening, I think, on Thursday. Um, nice. So, um, and I, I think I think it was interesting. I mean, it's interesting. I think for me, in that I remember kind of going back to when when the 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 accident happened, which I think is twelve years ago. There, there seemed to be a thing at that time where um, there was real doubt cast over whether or not nuclear power plants would be would be built. And I think Germany they uh, went hard against it. Didn't they went they? hard against it to the extent that I think they 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 accelerated their plans to close them. And I think earlier this year they did actually close the last nuclear power plant in in Germany. Um, and um, but in the UK we 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 sort of now going ahead with with size or c um so so i think although although there was a bit of a wobble it's it's kind of not really changed 
a great deal here at least. But I think it's kind of, and it has been, I've, I've been aware of this issue of this this kind of radioactive, apparently water's been something that's going to happen at some point. Apparently um, it's really controversial. China is really, really unhappy about it. Um, they're saying that Japan is treating the ocean like it's private sewer, which maybe resonates a little bit with uh, what's going on over here. Um, so, so yeah, I, th- I just thought that was a really interesting story and um, just kind of brought back some some of the something that, that we, we we covered a lot back back a long time ago, but um, it's still really live issue. Still here, still here. And Shosha, what was yours? Well, mine is um, perhaps less insightful and interesting as really quite cool and fun um but this weekend there's gonna be a huge search for the loch ness monster from fukushima to the loch ness monster let's hear it <laughs> we're gonna go from the global to the hyper local uh, but it's pretty high tech because the plan is for them to use drones for the first time ever to produce thermal images of the water from the air and they'll use like infrared cameras to do that as well as a hydrophone so they can detect acoustic signals beneath the surface amazing so So they will find it this time i think they will there's hundreds of people going and it would be amazing if they find something even if it's just like giant sturgeon or um oh i saw online somewhere someone thinks it could be you know, the last dinosaur, like they're going to find a plesiosaur down there or something. <laughs> awesome. I look forward to that. Um, my, my moment of the week is on the small scale, and that is the successful breeding of something called the scarce yellow sally oh, stonefly. Yeah, yeah, I saw that. You yes, see that? Yeah. I didn't see this. What was it? So, it's, so this is this sort of dinosaur age group of insects called stoneflies, um, and they were thought extinct uh, in Western Europe and for about 25 years. And then a few years ago, they found one location in the River Dee, um, North Wales. And not only that, but this week, Chester Zoo confirmed that of that population, I think they took about 30, um, that they refound at the River Dee. They've successfully bred the whole life cycle of the nymph to the fly of the scarce yellow sally, which means that on that 22-year absence, they are ready to reintroduce those stoneflies back into the environment, which is incredibly important because, like I said, this is the only population in Western Europe that I think the, the next east is like Bulgaria and Austria. Problem is, they're not going to be able to release them until the waters get cleaner, they said. Oh, no. I do like the name, though. Was it? The Scarce Yellow Sally, Isogenus wow. nubecula. I mean, they were around when the dinosaurs were kicking. Do you know what I mean? Maybe they were around when the Loch Ness Monster was around. Maybe, maybe they It's all coming there. together. It's so all there. Cool. For this week's deep dive, I spoke to Helen Clarkson, the chief exec of Climate Group, the non-profit working with more than 500 multinational businesses in 175 markets worldwide on climate sustainability. Now, some of these businesses include Arup, you've got Deutsche Bank, Goldman Sachs, Mott McDonald, Siemens, the Crown Estate. It's a big list. And as the Secretariat for the Under Two Coalition, Climate Group also works with more than 150 state and regional governments, which are now committed to net zero. It was an insightful interview on green politics, electric cars and climate treaties, including the backup plan for the Paris Agreement at COP. Wait, what? Yep, you heard me. There was a plan B. So let's jump in. 
So there seems to be this sort of perceived focus in the UK government on oil and gas right now. And sort of major parties seem to be sort of shying away from some green policies, maybe because there's an election coming up. What are the CEOs of the businesses you work with saying to you about kind of the direction of travel right now in the UK? Yeah, I haven't talked to any in the last few weeks, you know, as it's kind of really come up the agenda. But overall, what we hear from all the businesses that we work with is what they're looking above all else is policy consistency. So what they want is to understand how the next three, five, 10 years are going to play out because they make decisions over those timeframes, particularly if you look at something like the automotive industry, you know, something like the 2030 uh, commitment around the end of combustion engines. That's really important because that sort of sets the design time. It sets the kind of lead time for vehicles. So moving around on those things is sort of unhelpful. Or sometimes it's a, it's a red herring because they've already started to make that planning. So when you get something like the oil and gas licenses, what businesses want is a kind of consistent framework that's about how we get to net zero. And they don't like all this kind of changing around. And some of it, I think when you see it, it's just kind of electioneering or whatever, you know, that's not very helpful. What they want is a long-term planning. And so I think you'll start to see, and I think we're really seeing this in lots of sectors, businesses starting to think about who they think is going to win the next election and looking at their policies to some extent. You mentioned the the ending of the sale of new uh, petrol and diesels by 2030. We think right now that policy is is sort of in place and standing, but there have been sort of, it feels like a turning against other green policies like the ultra low emission zone in London. Um, If we think of the Uxbridge by-election, certainly Labour and Tories seem to be blaming or praising Sadiq Khan, depending on on what side you sit on for that um, conservative win. Do you think those sort of stick policies as opposed to carrot policies will encourage a greater uptake of things like electric vehicles? I think what's going wrong with, with at the moment is this kind of approach where it's individual headline grabbing that both sides go for to some extent. Not the, not the ULES policy itself, but the way that the, the Conservatives kind of weaponise that by focusing in on, you know, one policy in in one place. What businesses want, and I think what the general public wants, is a much stronger vision of what does it look like? How do we get to 2030? How do we get to 2050? Because if you can tell that whole story, then you can sort of see how these different policies fit in. And so if you could say, well, we're going to bring uh, low emission zones in in this and that city at this date, here's a scrappage scheme, here's sort of subsidies for various people, you show how it's part of a bigger picture then I think people can understand how it fits together. So another one that came up, um, I was doing some media around the time of the ULES vote and things, and I was asked about, well, we're not going to be able to have gas boilers by 2035. You know, th- how would people be able to afford it? It's like, well, of course, sitting in 2023, that seems like a crazy policy or like undoable. But actually, if you start to think about, well, what would it take to get to that sort of policy? What would it take to get to you know, energy certification by 2033, whatever the dates are, if you as a government can set out a date and then say, this is how we work back, you're sending really strong signals to the market, then actually by the time we get there, it's much, much less painful. And I think that's what people really miss about something like the 2030 policy is that we sit with our 2023 brains and just think, well, that, you know, that's impossible. Well, no, it's not. If you set a long-term policy and then set out, this is how we're going to get here and you've signaled to the market, that's what you're doing, then it's a really powerful way of creating change. So I like those kind of long-term 
policies, but they need to come with roadmaps that help you then understand, well, how do low emission zones fit into that or how do you know different policies fit into that story? There are countries in Europe, Norway is a, is a great example of where electric vehicles and sales of um, are doing really well. What is the UK missing that Norway is doing right for electric vehicles? Or well, Norway subsidised, right? And so they went really big on, on, on subsidies and actually they spent their um, sovereign wealth fund, the, the money they made from oil, to get that transition. And this is where kind of taking a bigger view of the market really helps because, you know, if you've done any kind of economics and seen, looked at sort of supply and demand, there's a lot that's wrong with kind of classic economics. But you just think of supply and demand curves, they sort of broadly work. The more that you have to produce and supply and, and the, those kind of learning curves, that's what get prices down. And so if you start to subsidize markets early and you can get more of them into the market, you can get more people using them, you get crucially more people producing those vehicles, that's what will lead to the price coming down. And then over time, you can withdraw the subsidies. And I think in the UK, we've done things, we've been very erratic around subsidies, we've drawn them too early, we see the market moving, we pull subsidies out. And it's this kind of short-sightedness and doing kind of one thing at a time, which is where I think we're going wrong. Whereas Norway's just done this much bigger program of sort of subsidising and getting that uptake kind of up over the tipping point. Could we be sleepwalking into any unintended consequences though with electric vehicles? So I'm thinking for rural communities, will that be a problem for travel and length of travel? Um, are we? Do we have a problem with sort of rare earth metals and supply issues? Can you see anything in that 2030 vision where we need to be wary of electric vehicles? Yeah, our- I think so. For a start uh, on the kind of on the rare earth, there's an issue there. A lot of that issue has, though, been overplayed by fossil fuel interests in the media. And I think that's really muddying the waters on some of those supply issues. So around batteries and things, we know they are recyclable for a long time. You can have a second life for batteries. There's lots of things that you can do. And we know that there's a lot of distortion that's coming out there. And I think that's what can make things really, really tricky because we we can't get underneath the skin of some of those things because of what's happening around this kind of like, well, what about, you know, what about this? What about that? Um, and I always sort of say like, no one's ever kind of asks about the you know embodied emissions in an oil platform which you know it, it's it's very one-sided that thing and we need to be able to understand those things i think on the rural car issues look first of all we know that battery technology is getting better again learning curves and and, and all those kind of rates of improvement will help as we get that kind of investment in um, and batteries are getting longer and longer range and, and i think that range anxiety piece you know we do need to look at it and deal with it um But a lot of this is about that 2030 um, target is the sale of new vehicles, right? And a lot of that is about how do you end up with only electric vehicles much more out at like, I think, 2040, 2050, because the secondhand market is about 15 years or something. I can't remember the exact timings of vehicles to kind of get from kind of primary into secondary into into tertiary. So again, I think there's a lot of fear mongering that people hear that and they're like, right, I'm going to have to have an electric vehicle by 2030. I don't think I could do my live my life now with that. So therefore, the whole thing doesn't work as a stun- understanding it as a market mechanism. So Climate Group runs something called EV100, which is um, a campaign to get corporates to commit to 100% electric vehicles in their fleets by 2030. And the significance there is that in a market like the UK, 50% or more of new vehicles in a year are bought by companies and put into their fleets as you know the kind of 
the, the benefit you get a car, people kind of forget that, I think, particularly in London where it's not really a big thing, but, you know, actually vehicles that companies buy for the use by their employees is more than, you know, it's more than 50% of the market. And that's what becomes the secondhand cars that people buy in five, six, seven years' time. And so that's why we've really focused on on that part of the market, because if you can get to that to start to tip, you build out these much longer um, kind of roadmaps to how we're going to get to these things. And, and when we think about net zero by 2050, and I think it's that kind of long-term thinking and planning that, you know, we get good at, or the UK government gets good at, and then it forgets, well, you know, there's a change and sort of uh, things get ripped up. And, and, and that's what's frustrating, I think. And I think that's what businesses say that what they want is this policy consistency, right? We know we've got to get to hundred percent by 2030. This is what we're going to do now. This is what we're going to do next, you know, and, and they can kind of plan it out. And have you seen over sort of the the decade plus of conservative governments, have you seen that rise and fall between of interest in electric vehicles, energy policy, erratic? Yeah, I mean, actually, the, the big irony is that the, the, the PM who was best on this stuff was Boris Johnson. And I say the big irony because... You know, he didn't like. Not people liked him. Not everyone liked him. Not everyone liked him. Lots of people in the environmental movement didn't like him very much for all sorts of reasons. And uh, you know, there were so many things one could call into question about his premiership. But but we, he was good at, at, at. He he did kind of get some of that stuff. And and if you look at COP twenty six and the ten point plan that the government released around then, actually that was pretty good. And that's quite a good plan. And a lot of that is still kind of in place in headline form, we need the policies that kind of come in behind that and actually start to do the work. And I think we're a lot of that has got lost. Yeah. No, that is interesting. So Isaac Goldsmith stood down on that basis that the current Prime Minister wasn't following the kind of the previous example. Yeah. Um and Oleg Sharma, of course, you know, writing in was it the Observer, you know, very, very keen to keep keep this government on track towards the next big climate Alex conference. Alex interesting, actually, because when he took over as COP president, he wasn't particularly interested. And really? he really got it. Yeah. And I think spending a lot of time around this, you know, by the end, and, and it was interesting because, uh, you know, obviously the UK ended up with a two-year COP presidency, which doesn't normally happen um, because of COVID and COP, COP being delayed. And I met him very consistently, you know, probably a sort of six, 12 months, six-month intervals probably over that two-year period. Things like COP and Climate Week and all that sort of. It was really interesting to see the evolution of someone who's having to really sit in the middle of all this stuff. And yeah, by the end, and and by the time we got to Egypt, which is I think you know where he was handing over, yeah, he really really understood a lot of this. And and would, it would have been great to see him have a position now, which he doesn't, and no. for whatever reason that is. Interesting. On, on the subject of sort of international climate conferences. I know that the climate group hosts the annual New York Climate Summit. Yeah. Um, which in partnership with the UN General Assembly. Yeah. And you've got the annual conference in September in New York. To me, sometimes I feel like these things are quite nebulous. They they sort of they happen over there. Yeah. And the impact I don't necessarily feel over here. What do you hope to sort of get out of that conference this year? Like what concrete things yeah. do you hope for other people to see and take home? After it, there's a few things. So, Climate Week 
NYC um, happens in September. It's the third week of September each year. It happens alongside UNGER. So it's sort of so the UN General Assembly, they're there and it's time. So it's the second week, at, week of that. And Climate Group, you know, curates it, runs it. We have our own programming. So we run something called the Opening Ceremony, which is where the, the big names you just talked about speak. A couple of days of something called the Hub Live, which is where a lot of practitioners come together. And then there's affiliate events. So things that are associated with Climate Week happening across the week. And the idea is that everyone knows that it's happening at that time each year. They kind of descend on New York. The reason for doing it alongside UNGA was not just, you know, to kind of get that mark of the UN or, or kind of, it, it's, there's very, the thing that I always think about is if you've ever been to New York that week, it's completely gridlocked because all these heads of state are heading to the UN. They're in traffic and I want them to be sitting in traffic and look out of the window of their, you know, black vehicle and see a climate week poster and think, oh yeah, it's climate. Well, what am I doing on the climate? And it's a moment to get those heads of state actually have to kind of think about climate. The UN uh, Secretary General is doing a sort of one day thing this year on climate. That will be on the Wednesday. So it's a kind of forcing moment to get them to kind of think about it, talk about it. Some of them turn up to our event and speak. So that's that kind of high level a moment in the year where you're at least making them read their brief on climate and understand what they're doing, because not all of them are very engaged in the topic. Then at the kind of next level, you get a kind of round of announcements and it works quite well as a moment where maybe companies or governments or mayors that are thinking of announcing something, they know they can have a platform there if it's good enough and right. we have quite good standard. And sometimes it gets them over the line. So we've launched things at Climate Week. We launched, you know, EV100, RE100, things like that will happen um, there. And then more and more, actually, what comes out of it is a lot of stuff that you won't necessarily see, which is whether those are kind of closed door roundtables that are being curated or meetings on the side. When you've got a lot of people together, one of the things we've done over years is try and uh, improve the space in which people can either bump into each other or have planned meetings to do the actual kind of work that kind of coming face to face needs to be done. So it happens on, on sort of lots of different levels. I think this year, what matters to me is, and it, you, it, this might sound quite nebulous, but you know, there's been this attack in the US on kind of woke capitalism. So this idea that if you pay attention to the climate, that you're somehow neglecting your shareholders. And we know that that's false. We know that good business means understanding the long-term risks that your company face. Um, we know that you can see there's a lot of research now that shows that companies with good climate planning or good ESG planning often have better financial returns. Now, that isn't because the stock market is necessarily rewarding that. It means they've got a really good understanding of risk and are doing business planning around that. And you can see that correlation. But somehow this kind of culture war attack on the climate has been really kind of escalating. So one of the things that I want out of Climate Week is that sense of people who are maybe feeling quite embattled either within their company or kind of normally from without coming together and, and sort of seeing what everyone else is up to and kind of feeling confident that this is going to continue. They are doing the right thing, not from a moral point of view, but a business point of view, and that they can get on with that business and that it's not just, you know, kind of having stones thrown at them. And that, and that might feel a bit nebulous, but I think it's really, really important because when you look at the progress we've made on climate and on other environmental issues, certainly on the corporate side, I think a lot of that 
Yes, you get some big leaders, but a lot of that is about the pack following. And actually what you want is the kind of the norms to shift, right? You want that that change that like, no, actually thinking about the climate is the normal thing to be doing in the course of business. And I think Climate Week and other venues like that provide a moment to be like, okay, this is the right, this is the, the right thing to be doing from a business standpoint. I quite like that. Um the idea of sticking our leaders in traffic jams and, and making them think 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 about what they're up well, to. Well, we've got a good. Um, we've had a really good partnership with JC Deco the last few years. You you know the name you see at the top of all bus stands. Yeah, and they give us a spot on that rotating uh, bus stand in New York. So increasingly, you see it as you when climate group people see it, they go oh, and then they get their phones out and then you get stuck for ages waiting for it to <laughs> come around again. Around. It's, it's kind of quite randomised, I think. But yeah, we've we've really tried to like up the presence in New York. And I always think, well, everyone knows when fashion week is like, why they've got, we should, people should know when climate week is. Right. Right. And, and it's interesting that the climate summit was the backup of getting the States involved around the world to the Paris agreement. Is that right? There was, there was like, yeah. So we talk about that a bit. Yeah. So in 2015, we were running something called, and this predates me at Climate Group, but we were running something called the States and Regions Alliance, which was it's that next level of government. Um, For Brits, I always talk about that marzipan layer. It doesn't work in the rest of the world, but if you imagine a cake, the you know got the top layer and then that kind of gluey layer, which in you know in the UK it's Scotland and Wales, Um, in the US it's the states, Um, Australia has states. Uh, Canada provinces, it's that level of government, the next one down, often from federal, which have a lot of powers. And then they also have, it's also often the level of government at which you get this real kind of carbon jobs interaction. So, you know, if you think about- Biden economics or whatever it's called. Yeah, so if you think of like Wales has heavy- heavily concentrated heavy industry. So there's sort of like 12 big employers in Wales or something like that, a lot of them in heavy industry. Now you could say, well, let's decarbonize whale by shutting down the steel, but Tata, who's one of the big employers, they're just going to take the business elsewhere. So it doesn't really help the planet and it's very detrimental, but somehow Wales has to decarbonize. So it's a really important level of government because you know there's a lot of kind of quite, quite local, but not sort of super local, but the, these kind of issues. So we were running the States and Regions Alliance and California uh, Governor Jerry Brown, who is a very big character, very big on the climate scene, talking to his counterpart in Baden-Württemberg in Germany, which is a kind of leading region there and saying, well, what if there isn't an agreement in Paris? Why don't we get states and regions around the world to sign an MOU, Memorandum of Understanding, commits us to under two degrees uh, sea of warming. And that's what formed the under two MOU. They got all these signatories. Paris then did happen. There was a deal. And then they said to us, well, could you run this as a kind of implementation coalition? And that's how it became the under two coalition, which is, you know, sort of 150 plus states and regions signed up now and, and increasingly committed to net zero. Um, and that's the kind of level of commitment we expect from, from them now. And a lot of that is, you know, coming together with one another, understanding there's a lot of work at the moment on diplomacy and how do they want to influence the UN processes, but also a lot of kind of learning projects because to go back to the Wales example, um, you know, there's one person in Wales who has to think in the Welsh government who gets to think through that problem. They're very under-resourced, but there's also someone in Minnesota who has to think through the same problem there. And if you can bring those two people together and can can they learn from one another, can you uh, import policy from one place to another or at least jump some of the kind of learning steps. That's the sort of projects we've been doing with them. 
And finally, then just on this idea of sort of the remit of power, I'd like to propose a hypothetical to you, which is that you are now in charge of energy policy in the UK. You've got you've got the green light to do what you want. What would you <laughs> what would you do in the first six months? I think we've got to sort of shift the subsidy regime away from oil and gas and onto renewables because those are the sorts of it, it's very distorted at the moment. And so we're still subsidizing effectively the industry we want to get out of, and we're not subsidizing what we want to get into. We need to be subsidizing much more heavily offshore wind in particular, solar, other renewable technologies. So, you know, I was reading something the other day and I'm I'm never the person who understands exactly the, the kind of um, the auctions and the market, but there's a real distortion happening again now, which is sort of pushing wind down. And we've got an amazing capacity for offshore wind here, which is where we should be really going. I do think we should be upping onshore wind as well. But I think the, the biggest thing that's underlying all of this is the, the incentives are misplaced. And so we're, we're ending up with the wrong results. And that's all we've got time for for this week's episode of The Eco Chamber. My thanks to Shosha Ad, Jamie Carpenter and Helen Clarkson for coming onto this week's episode, where I've learnt the one water vol release doesn't make a fine right for over-abstraction, that the EA may be able to leverage fines a thousand-fold bigger than ever before, that water voles may be just as cool as beavers, and that it's a good idea to have a backup plan especially when it comes to COP climate negotiations. I'd really love to hear your thoughts, listeners, your views, your opinions, your criticisms, your heresies on what we are doing at the Eco Chamber. So please email us, ecochamber at haymarket.com or on social media using the hashtag ecochamber. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and maybe even share it with a friend. Until the next time, take care of yourself. <laughs>